Hi, and hello, watch fans, and welcome to another edition of The Real-Time Show. With me, your friendly neighborhood jeweler, Alon Majos. Today, I'm very honored and proud to welcome my dear friend to the virtual studio, Hans-Peter Piet, the CEO of Bayer Chronometry in Zurich. Welcome, Hans-Peter. Hey, hi, Alan. Great to be here. It's a great honor to be on the show with you. The honor and pleasure is all mine. You are also an esteemed member of the TRTS Network. It was um, actually a long time since we've invited you. You're super busy. You just celebrated your first anniversary at Bayer. Tell us, did you celebrate that with uh, some Spungli, who's uh, your neighbor on the Bahnhofstrasse? Yeah, of course, we had a big party on the Bahnhofstrasse. No, uh, to tell you very honest, it's too cold to do anything on Bahnhofstrasse now. And um, in general, I'm not that kind of person who goes out and needs to celebrate myself. I'm always happy to celebrate other people's success, but um, I'm more quiet about myself in general. That I concur with. I am very honored to call you my dear friend. We actually speak uh, at least every month. And you are the most stand-up guy, most friendly guy, most honest and has integrity in Switzerland. I love you. So I'm very happy to sit here with you. Um, Rob <clears throat> had to excuse himself. So I'm even happier because I have you 100% to myself. Before we dive into Bayer, which I believe is the oldest jeweler or retailer in Switzerland. Watch retailer, yes. It's the oldest watch retailer in Switzerland. Well, it's actually the oldest watch retailer in the world, even. Wow. Okay, so that's amazing. So I definitely want to dive down uh, that history and that story. But actually, your personal journey is very, very exciting. I want you to take the mic. I'm going to sit back with my coffee. And please walk us through your whole journey in the jewelry and watch industry. And you've been around the world, not just Switzerland. Yeah, I will. Uh, just stop me when I talk too much, huh? because sometimes I know when to start, but I don't know when to finish anymore, because I was really very fortunate, I must say, in, in my work life, in my career, uh, that I could see a lot of things, experience a lot of things, also a lot of changes, obviously, within the world, but especially also within the industry. So maybe when I start very early on, um, Typically, coming from Switzerland, I made an apprenticeship in a bank, but um, I knew quite quickly that the bank is not my future because in the bank, one plus one is two. And I like things when one plus one is not necessarily two, but it depends a little bit how you look at it and how you explain it and how you how you reason. So um, after um, this, let's say, four years within the bank, I did another study in, in business and uh, shortly before I finished my studies, I um, contacted a friend of mine who at that time was working in Japan and I asked him for Swiss companies who have presence in Asia because for some reasons, already when I was 12 year old, I always said one day I want to go to work in Asia. Of course, my parents thought that this is just kind of a crazy idea, but um, I, I was serious about it. And so I was still in my studies, three months to go. Um, he gave me a few addresses. I applied with a few companies and I applied also with a company in the French part of Switzerland called uh, Gole Buchel, company, uh, family business as well, over a hundred of years. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't exist anymore today. But anyway, I applied with them. I had an interview. They said, look, we are interested in you, but um, no job at the moment. I said, no problem, because like everybody after your studies, you want to go to travel. So my plan was to take a one-year break and travel the world. And about three, four weeks before I had my final exams, they called me up and said, we have a job for you in Hong Kong as Pearl Department Manager. Uh, are you interested? I said, uh, Hong Kong, never been. Pearls, I have no clue. Let's go. And that's kind of how I entered into this industry. So in 1994, um, I, they trained me then. I spent six months in Japan, which at that time was still the, the center of the pearl um, trading. All pearls went to Japan and from Japan to the rest of the world and then moved to Hong Kong and started to work in Hong Kong. Um, first trip then into China was 95, I think late 95, early 96. And so I'm out of Hong Kong. Um, we did wholesaling business, mainly of uh, 
pearls, of diamonds, of gemstones, of jewelry imported from Italy, jewelry tool. Golibichel at that time had also synthetic stones, which they produced in the Philippines. Later in a joint venture with Swarovski, a company that still exists today, Signity, in the distribution of, of, of synthetic stones. So I, I was in Hong Kong. I was in charge of this pearl department and how things go. A predecessor of mine returned to Switzerland. And when I was only 29 years old, um, they made me managing director of this company in Hong Kong. Hindsight, I must say, it was a little bit early because I didn't have much experience. I mean, uh, I, I was fresh from school, so to speak. And I think it's always good when you can grow and have a mentor in your uh, in your career. Um, something that um, I didn't have at that time and still uh, it gave me great exposure and a great, great experience. So I worked for 12 years with this company. Um, I um, was in charge of Greater China, Southeast Asia, and I traveled a lot to Japan because, as I said before, pearls came from Japan at that time. And even so, I was uh, afterwards in charge of the whole business, including diamonds and color gemstones. I kept always a soft spot for pearls because I think it's one of the most fascinating gem that we have. And it's it's something from a living organism. It's something very feminine. I think it's just a a beautiful product. Um, after 12 years, I changed and I was employed by DKSH, which is a big trading house, um, public company today in Switzerland. And they had also a luxury and lifestyle division. And within that luxury and lifestyle division, they had the responsibility for uh, Roger Duby for Hall of Asia. This was pre-Richemont time. So it was still Carlos Diaz, who was the owner and, and CEO of the company. I joined them um, and in 2007 and, and stayed with them for three years until Rishmo then took over the brand. And so this three years was absolutely fantastic and interesting as well, because Roger Duby at that time was also still quite a small brand. And small brands in Asia, they tended to... Um, keep Asia as one region and not split it up like the bigger brands do. So um, bigger brands, very often they have Japan, Southeast Asia and Greater China. But in the case of Roger Duby, I was kind of in charge of all of Asia, uh, which gave me the chance to um, get to know and to work with all kinds of different countries, different cultures and I must say, for me, one of the most enriching things in life is really to get to know different cultures, to travel to different places, to work with different personalities, but also with different people and, and especially also with, with different ways of doing business. I mean, doing business in Japan is so different than from doing business in Thailand or in Indonesia or, or in China or in Taiwan. And so to work with these different and mentalities, I think it's very, very enriching. And uh, whenever I traveled into a new country for the first time or a new city for the first time, I always kind of sat first for um, one, two hours in the main square of a city, uh, was drinking a coffee and just observed people and observed what's happening around me. And I think by doing that, by looking on how people interact, on how people um, do business together, even the street vendors, you learn a lot about people, you learn a lot about cultures, and you learn a lot about how they do business in these specific countries. After um, Roger Duby was bought by um, the Rishmo Group, um, I returned then uh, to Switzerland. That was in 2010. And I was for 10 years then in charge of the retail operation of another big uh, Swiss retailer, which... Um, I had a great, great time as well. It was very interesting because we were very big in travel retail, but we had also a strong local business and also a strong focus on, on the own jewelry brand. Um, and I'll say, actually, before I became in this position of, of running the whole retail operation of this company, I did work one year as a, as a boutique manager of that company in Zurich. And normally... You do that at the beginning of a career. I think it's always good if um, you stayed once in a boutique, you face the customer, you talk to clients, you know all the um, 
great moments and things you experience in a boutique, uh, but also the challenges and the complaints and uh, the difficulties. So um, this one year, which I, I was in charge of this boutique in Zurich, I really learned a lot, um, a little bit the later stage of, of my career, but it was something that um, even today I consider as extremely valuable. And to everybody who wants to do a career in, in, re, in, in, in luxury business, I always say, work once in a boutique, face the customer, feel what it is really like, because that is where you hear the honest opinions and feedbacks of clients, of of people who love watches, of people who buy jewelry. And it's not done in an ivory tower somewhere in the head offices, but it's really where you face the customer that you know what's what's happening and, and how people feel about the different brands, uh, about the different products, what is important for them, what is not important for them. So it was a very, very interesting uh, period. After 10 years, uh, in the middle of um, COVID, um, I changed. I then went back to China for one year. Um, that was a little bit crazy because it was um, really 2020, um, end of 2020. Um, and actually, you couldn't travel officially into China anymore. But um, I got a special invitation from Hainan government and I was working for um, another Swiss retailer who is very strong in travel retail um, plans to open a presence in Hainan. As you know, Hainan um, is getting very um, popular as a tourist destination for Chinese to buy um, duty-free products. And uh, the Chinese government is pushing that very strongly because they would like that the Chinese citizen rather buy their luxury products in China than in Europe or in the States or somewhere around Asia. So they invested a lot into that island. When I arrived there, there was one duty-free um, complex from China duty-free. When I left one year later, um, there were five different duty-free stores or complexes. It's not just a store, it's huge. Um, in different parts of the island, um, mainly in Haiko, which is the capital north of uh, Hainan, and in Sanya, where I stayed, in the in the south of, of Hainan. And so I was at the time in China where nobody could travel into China. Actually, it was very interesting. At that time, you could travel freely around the country while it was quite um, strange and difficult in Europe. Um, uh, it was only in 2022 that they had these hard lockdowns in Shanghai, Beijing and some of the bigger cities. But during my time there, um, I, I was free to travel the country. And this was very interesting. No tourists there. No international business people there. A uh, very special moment in, in the history of China, I think, as well. I came back to Switzerland um, and decided to take to a little bit of a break. Um, I um, went up to the mountains where I'm lucky to have a little house. Spent um, one year up in the mountains, skiing, hiking, biking, walking the dog. Um, it was a very nice time and started then again to talk to people. And um, I know René Bayer for quite a long time already. I mean, we are a small industry. Uh, people know each other, which is a nice thing. And so we kind of found an agreement that I would start to work for Bayer. Um, and René, who was CEO of the company, would focus more on, on board work and that I would take over the operational um, responsibility of Bayer in Zurich. And so that's what I did now for a year. Started January a year ago. And um, uh, it's very exciting to work in a company that has so much history, eighth generation, same family, so it never changed the family. And interestingly, they never had the ambition to move out of Zurich. They've always said, um, rather be a big fish in a small pond than a small fish in a big pond. And, and like that, they established their reputation, which is going way further than just Zurich or Switzerland. Um, the company, I think, is known almost all over the world for its long history and for, for several other reasons, long relationship with some of the major brands. So that's in a nutshell, long story, <laughs> but that's in a nutshell a little bit what I experienced so far in my life. And I must say, these three years with, with Roger Dupy were great for me because when you stay in Hong Kong as a foreigner, um, you are suddenly becoming a different kind of uh, a 
not a different kind of person, but you get access to things I would never had the chance to get access in Switzerland because many of these brand CEOs traveled, of course, to Hong Kong. And so in the evening, you sit somewhere, you eat somewhere, and suddenly you meet people. And it was in Hong Kong. In these three years, I was with um, DKSH, um, Roger Duby, that I got to know most of the brand CEOs and um, brand sales directors, um, because just Hong Kong is a small place and you meet and you talk. And these connections or this relationship helped me a lot when I came back to Switzerland. And I'm happy to stay in touch with many of them up to today because um, uh, people move within the industry and you stay in touch with these people, which is a great thing. And of course, Alan, we met then during this time when I was with this other Swiss retailer, which which was great. And um, I really appreciated all the inputs which I got from you as well. Thank you so much. You're the best guest ever. You're making my life as an interviewer and host very easy. So thank you. So much to unpack there. Now, the first question that pops into my mind, do you love jewelry or watches more? It's a very good question. I must say up to today, I love both things. I love jewelry and watches a lot, but what I love most is is doing business and and I love to do international business and I love people. And and I think we are just extremely fortunate to work in an industry with amazing people, with very creative people and with absolutely amazing products. So I can't even tell you um when I look at the watch uh, I get excited um, when I look on a beautiful piece of jewelry. I get excited too. So honestly, um, it's just what I hold in my hand that excites me. So it can be jewelry or watches. I totally concurred with you about the fact that if you work in luxury, where there is an aspect that you deal with <clears throat> consumers, you should actually work in retail. This is a philosophy also by one of the biggest Dutch retailers that has a big footprint in the US. It's a supermarket chain, uh, Ahold, and uh, they tried to compete with Walmart. With them, from day one, and it's a public listed company, if you want to be a management trainee, you need to work one year minimum in a supermarket of theirs. If you don't want to do it, you can't get employed. And 80% 80% of the students feel too good that finish their master's degree and they simply don't want to do it because their ego doesn't permit them. Now, extrapolating this to the Swiss or the luxury industry, I always kid around that our industry is filled with too many Excel managers, I say that with pun intended, that live in an ivory tower and actually lost feeling with what consumers want. What do you think? When I say that, I actually agree on that. I think it's not only the case in the luxury industry. I mean, one thing which I cut out in my my career history is that for one year I was once working for a headhunter uh, to find uh, temporary jobs for people. And um, already at that time, I said, okay, if I need to find a job for people, I need to understand the job. And so I went into a department store and I was um, working in the luggage department to sell luggage and um, only afterwards I could really, really describe what the job is all about. And when you talk about the luxury industry, I really agree on that, that too many people are in positions which have never really faced the customer. Or when they face the customer, they face it at a fancy event where you don't really have the reality of everyday life and I think this reality of everyday life and to sit down with a customer for an hour and to talk and to get to know him and to get to know what they like what they don't like what is important for them I think that is the real school that everybody should do and for me um like what I at the moment do with with um, Bayer it's really again much closer to the customer. Of course, I cannot sit every day with the customer and talk, but I think you should never lose touch with your clients. You should never lose um, the feeling or the, the desire to to understand and to communicate. And 
when you look on many companies, people come from great schools. They have done great studies. They're intellectually very well trained. At the, at the end of the day, it's a one-on-one -on -one relationship. It's, it's, it's really how can you bring across the story to the client? And maybe to open a bracket here, many um, brands today say, we want to create a special experience when the customer comes in our store. But it's very seldom that I really see a special experience. Everybody does more or less the same. And I think, again, this is because people who create these concepts and these programs have never really worked themselves in a boutique. And so what is an special experience? How do you create a special experience? And I think it's a very interesting, actually, uh, topic to talk about the, uh, what brands do, what brands do different, and what customers actually really want. But to, to come back what you asked is, yes, I agree with you. I think we should always stay close to the customer in no matter what position you are, because at the end of the day, they are the one who tell you what they like and what they don't like. I love the fact that you made a reference to mentorship. You, as my friend, indirectly are my mentor. I love sparring with you. We talk a lot and you always take time to sit down with me physically or virtually or on the phone. And you actually write awesome articles on your LinkedIn profile. So those are rather philosophical uh, articles where you try to inspire by critical thinking. You never put people down. You're always positive and you never speak negatively. Now, did you find a mentor during your career? And my second question on this topic is, do you actually mentor proactively people? When I was with DKSH, Roger Duby, I had um, a boss. I learned a lot from him, uh, but I learned from him mainly also boardroom management, um, not so much on, on the business, on the technical side or on, on the sales side. But really these three years, I, I learned a lot from him on, on how to manage a boardroom and to focus on the important things and not just to, to, to lose yourself in details and things like this. And then afterwards, what I have to tell you, and I feel the same as you, uh, you are also a mentor for me. And many people around me became my mentors. I must say, you can learn from everybody. You just need to have open eyes. And that's what I wanted to say in the beginning when I said I travel to different countries, sitting on the square, observing people. I can learn from a street vendor and the street vendor can become somehow my, my mentor. Or I can um, learn from a cleaning lady. I mean, you have in Bayer a great cleaning lady and, and I love to talk to her because she looks on things from a totally different angle um, and, and, and sees things from a totally different angle and brings inputs that many other people don't see and don't bring. So for me, um, I just want to have an open spirit. I want to listen to everybody. If somebody is in the industry for one week or for 50 years, it doesn't matter. You can learn something from everybody if you have an open mind. And my today, my biggest reward is if I can help young people to um to grow and to to, to see things so so and and, and to help them to develop within that industry. Uh, we have to be careful because today, I mean, is a young new generation. They think different, they feel different. So Again, when I talk to these young people, I learn as much from them as I hope they can learn from me. Because we were a long time in this industry, we also need to learn from them who just enter this industry. Because they are the one who will build this industry and, and, and develop it further. So for me, many people became mentors. And I hope I can be mentor to many people, not so much by one-to-one -one sitting together and, 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 and theory uh, talking, but more in, in the daily life when you share your experience with people, when you share your thinking with people, and by, by being interested and open to talk to everybody. What can we non-Swiss learn from you here on the show about the psyche of the Swiss? 
I dare to call them tough, relatively closed. I dare to say dry, maybe introvert. They seem a bit distant, and I always rave about that. I can't believe how un-Swiss you are, and therefore I ask you, what can we, non-Swiss people listening to this podcast, do to improve our relationship with Swiss people? Do you have tips for us? <laughs> I don't know if the relationship with Swiss is so difficult, but um, from what you described to me, maybe sometimes it is a little bit challenging. It's actually interesting because, you see, um, Switzerland, I think, is one of the most cosmopolitan country. I know that you wouldn't probably agree with me on that, but when you look on the facts, we have such a mixed population. I mean, first of all, we have already three um, cultures within our own country with Swiss French, Swiss Italian, and, and Swiss German. Not to forget about the Swiss Romance, but there are only 40,000 people, so um, not so much of an influence, but still there in, in the mindset of, of, of Switzerland. And then <laughs> Excuse me. We have so many people from so many different countries. We have um, uh, people who came in from Italy many years ago, from Spain, from Portugal, who helped us to build our streets and our houses and who stayed here and made beautiful careers here. We had people coming in from Eastern Europe, from, from Balkan countries, who also, um, for unfortunate reasons, came to Switzerland but stayed here, second generation here, built their business here and, and are part of our culture and of our life. I, I think in, in Zurich, if you're in Zurich, I would say, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but half of the population is not has, has a non-Swiss background. So I'm, I'm always surprised when people say, these people are so difficult, so hard to deal with, so so distant. Yes, I think it's true we are that sometimes, but at the same time I say we are such a mixed country that I don't really understand why that is the case. I think fact is that in Switzerland it takes some time uh, until people open up. Um, we are also <clears throat> very discreet and don't really want to show off what we have or what we don't have, so so we are very reserved Um but we are a country that looks very much for uh, harmonious decisions that comes from our political system that that you try to find an agreement where everybody kind of can live with it and, and you don't go into the extreme positions. So before you take a decision, you talk about it, you see where you can agree, you see where you can, where you disagree, and then you try to find a solution that everybody can live with it. And when you look on development, that's not always an advantage because that makes you slow. And today we are in a, living in a world where things are fast. We need fast decisions and fast changes. And um, we are not really that good on that because it's not part of our DNA. And I think that would maybe disturb sometimes people. That, that we don't decide so fast or that we don't move so fast as the rest of the world does, and in particular, as fast as uh, China does. I mean, when we look on, on on the developments in China, they have a totally different approach. We start to do things when we are sure it will work. The Chinese say, let's start, let's do it, and while we go along, we correct when it doesn't work. And that's a totally different approach. And And so we need to learn to open on that and like I hear from you, I think we Swiss particularly, we need to learn to open on that. And I can only um, encourage you when you meet Swiss, just take your time to get to know them. Take your time that they trust you. Um, be open, don't change for them. And, and eventually you will crack into that and, and they will open up. Um, but maybe I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm the right person to ask because as, as you say, I feel so much comfortable in the world and but I feel also comfortable in Switzerland it's my home country and I love it I love it too and like you I love the Asian cultures there's no one culture so one more question before we do a, a deep dive into Bayer is what 
do you love so much about the Asian cultures and what can we learn from it in the West? Or what did you learn that helped you in the West? I think, um, again, as you say correctly, the Asian cultures, because there are a lot of different cultures there. And, and I think like you, that's the reason why many brands split Asia into three, into greater China, Japan, and Southeast Asia, because these are kind of the, the big blocks, if you want to say. And these three blocks, they have a very different culture. And then within the blocks, again, they have different kind of um, cultures. I think one of the, the um, country that we surely need to look at it because simply of the development they have done in, in the past years is is China. Um, of course, not one to talk down Japan or the other Asian countries, but the one which really show us in the West what is possible um, is China. And I don't want to glorify China. I think there are many things in China which are um, challenging and which are difficult, but I think we should learn from the, Chi from the Chinese. Um, first thing what we need to learn from them is that they are interested in what's happening outside of China. Many of the business people in China, they sent their children to England or to the US to study. So these young people, they get to know Western culture. We are not willing to go the same way to China or to Asia and to learn about their culture. We think we know how things have to be done. We think we know better because we have so much history and because we have so much culture. So we are in a certain way arrogant. And the first thing we need to learn is that we can learn from them as much as they are willing to learn from us. <clears throat> the second thing is what I said before is, is this trial and error. Not always to want to do things perfect, but try, correct, move forward. Try again, make mistakes, learn from that, move forward again. And this trial and error creates a totally different kind of um, mentality and a totally kind of different drive and, 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 and creativity as well. And just read a book the other day and it's just interesting to see that, um, I mean, China, when it comes to electric cars, are way ahead of the Western world. Um, there, there are many, many cars. Uh, the biggest company is, uh, electric company car is from China, uh, in drones, in, in building new cities. Um, it's a lot of things which they are just because they don't have the backpack of we know and we have always done like that. And uh, they are much more open to try new things and they are much more open to embrace new things. And I think this we can learn from them, to be open, to embrace things, to be open to different way of doing things and, and to be willing to learn from basically everybody. Bayer, the oldest watch retailer in the world. For our dear listeners that love to scroll while listening to the episode, the website is b-e-y-e-r-ch.com. And before I forget, I, since I'm a kid, I always visit Bayer. I start with my parents or whenever we visit Zurich. The Bahnhofstrasse is the Fifth Avenue of, uh, of Zurich. Uh, it's the Champs d'Elysees or uh, call it the Place Vendôme even. And we always would visit Bayer, not only because they have an amazing collection of watches, jewelry, and pre-owned, but an amazing museum as well. My friend Ben Clymer, the founder of Hodinki, had a episode talking watches, I believe it was in 2018, where he visited René, your colleague. So walk us through what Bayer is today, Hans-Peter, besides the fact that they are one of the most important Patek and Rolex dealers in the world. Dare I say that? Uh, yes, I think we can still, well, most important is always relative, but we have a very long history with both of these brands. Um, we started to work with them together um, many, many, many years ago. And the family, um, especially also the father of René Bayer, had very close relationships with them as well. And so I think we have a very privileged relationship with both brands, yes. What other brands 
do you retail? Maybe walk us through what you guys do because it's a huge building. You have a standalone Patek Boutique, if I'm not mistaken. The museum is on the third, fourth floor. I don't remember. Walk us virtually to what buyer is, please. Yes. So um, as you said correctly, we have over 260 years of history. Um, we are uh, now almost 100 years in the same building at the Zurich Bahnhofstrasse. And of course, a lot of things have changed during that time. I mean, I even remember when I came back from Asia to Switzerland, 2010, there were very few monobrand boutiques at Bahnhofstrasse. Today, um, there are a lot of monobrand watch and jewelry boutiques at the Bahnhofstrasse. But maybe we talk about that a little bit later. So, Bayer, um, as, as we said, 260 years of history, uh, we have... Um, within this company, um, Patek and Rolex, obviously, as very important partners, we have for over 20 years our own jewelry brand. So our jewelry atelier is within the building on the second floor. We have within the building also our watchmakers. We do a lot of after-sell service um, for uh, Rolex. For Patek, unfortunately, uh, we can't do it anymore because Patek decided by end of last year that they will do all the after-sales service by themselves. And so they took it back. And uh, there is nobody anymore who can do this after-sales service for the brand, which, of course, um, hurt us a little bit because we love to do that. And it's very interesting work uh, for the watchmakers as well. But we accept, of course, the decision of Patek and they certainly have good reasons for that. Then we have a vintage business, and that's actually also quite interesting. Um, we call it pre-loft, but we do that since the 60s. So we haven't just started that with the whole hype of, of pre-owned watches um, in recent years, but we always did that since, since the 60, 60s, buying watches back, um, repairing them, installing them again, and resell them. So we do still today a very important pre-owned watch business. We are we're also after Bucherer, the second one in Switzerland, who did the certified pre-owned with, uh, with Rolex, which is working very well. Then we carry a group of other um, watch and jewelry brands, some from Swatch Group, some from Richemont, some from Louis Vuitton Group, uh, we have uh, some independent brands which we carry. We have some other jewelry brands that we carry besides our own jewelry brand. And um, you mentioned it, we have the museum, which is actually downstairs. Uh, the museum in which we have over a thousand exhibits, not exposed all of them. There are about 300 which are on display. But we have there uh, basically telling the history of time. So from the early time, from the Egyptians um, measuring time in their way to the modern time with NFTs, uh, which um, we did as well with Bayer um, two years ago. So we, we have we tell the whole history of time and we have time pieces out of all the all the different time spans in, in world history. So it's absolutely fascinating and it is a little bit the core and the um, credibility of buyer as well can be seen in this history because as long as there were watches basically mechanical watches um buyer was there as well and and was following that history and was partner to many many brands uh, during that time some of them they are still here some of them they're not here anymore some of them worked with us and now they have their own boutique some of them they grew very big and started to develop their own retailing network. So it, it was just 260 years going along with all the changes within the watch industry, the good times, the bad times. Um, I believe also that the reason why also jewelry becomes today um, more and more important, not just for Bayer, but for retailers in general, is because many watch brands, they decide to have their own retailing. So uh, we we have to move on with that and we have to find other ways of building our business. But I think that has always been like that. I think there have always been changes and there have always been um, um, 
ways we, we always needed to adapt. And I think one thing which definitely is is something that is remarkable about Bayer that they could always adapt during all this time, during all these changes, during economic crisis, during wars, during uh, maybe also beautiful and fantastic times, but always be flexible, adapt, not to say that's the only way we do it and no other way, but to move along with history and with time. I've been meaning to ask this to several of my friends that are Patek dealers, of whom had the honor to co-sign the dial. Today, if I'm not mistaken, the only one in the world is Tiffany & Co. that is eligible to co-sign the Patek Philippe watch dials when they deliver new watches. And I believe only in their New York branch and their San Francisco branch. Now, there are epic buyer pieces co-signed with Patek. Our mutual friend and friends of the Gubelin family also. So whenever I see these watches, I send them to you guys. But why is that not possible anyway? Do you know? I think we would have to ask Patek for that. Um, My personal view on that is I think it's not impossible anymore for very special anniversaries. So I think um, Botek would still be open to discuss with some of their retail partners about that. Um, so let's say if you have a, if Bayer has a 300 year anniversary or so, uh, then then maybe there would still be a possibility to do that. But I think in general you see that that it's not only Botek but many other brands as well. They don't do this co-signing anymore. Um, why? I can't tell you really. I think we would have to ask. Uh, uh, but the way I experienced Botek um, during now also more than 15 years that I work with them is they are an extremely nice and good partner and we can talk about everything. Uh, we can we can talk about good things, bad things, we can be critical, we can be very open with each other and I must say I really appreciate this very respectful way of dealing with each other. So I cannot mention one time where I would have to say Botek did something that was hurtful or bad. So I, I really, really think the way they work, the way they respect the retailer um, is is uh, exemplary. It's it's really nice. It's really good. And, and But why they don't accept this um, anymore in, on a general level? Maybe because it just would become too much, because it's 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 just not part of the strategy anymore. I want to ask you about the waiting lists. You hear stories of Patek and Rolex dealers around the world going crazy about the volumes of requests for the hot models. How do you deal with waiting lists, or do you even have waiting lists for these? very, very sought-after models at buyer. How do you deal with it? Uh, we don't call them waiting lists. We call them wish lists. And uh, we have them, of course, as well. And I think it's something that is not so easy to handle, but um, it's just when there is a higher demand than there is a supply, you have just to find ways on, on how you can handle that. So I think everybody can place a wish because you can have a wish. If you wish to have one of the very popular models or any of the other models, you can voice out the wish. Afterwards, the question is always how realistic is it and how fast can we satisfy this wish? And there, we just need to have a, an open and honest communication. So if somebody wants a specific Nautilus or a specific Daytona, which the demand is extremely high, we share with our customer that this is a wish that many other people have as well and that we don't really know exactly when we can fulfill that wish. I actually don't even want to say it is three months, six months or 12 months because it all depends. It all depends on the general supply and demand situation in the market. So 
today it is like this, tomorrow it can be different. Today we still have a model as part of the collection. Maybe the brand decides to not have this um, watch anymore in the collection in a year or in two years from now. So we, we just don't know exactly what's what's happening and I think that's normal. And on the demand side, I think it is um, also something that can change. Uh, we, we see and many people say that at the moment the market is slowing down a little bit and we definitely can see that prices in the second-hand market came down a little bit, which is an indication that it slows down. But um, at the same time, I think um, there will always be demand for, for these watches. There will be always interest for these watches. But um, at the moment, we still have a situation with certain Botec and Rolex models that the demand is much, much higher than the supply. The only thing I wish and I say to every customer, don't buy a watch because it's good investment value. Buy a watch because you like it. This is like a painting. When you have a painting on the wall at home and it's a painting that has maybe huge value, but um, it's not very nice in terms of like, like the, the screen, for example. I'm not sure if I would want to have that in my living room. Even the value of that painting is huge. So I say buy a watch because you like the watch. And if afterwards it has some value that remains a, a value over many, many years and, and for the next generation, it's beautiful, it's nice. But don't make your decision only driven by the investment perspective. And I really try to tell people that again and again and again, we should look for beauty. And beauty is not necessarily always what everybody wants. And I must say, I have a personal experience. I also once bought the watch because everybody said, oh, you have to buy this watch. This is one of the most demanded models and things like this. And I still have this watch but I wear it very, very seldom because when I look at it, actually, it's not my favorite watch. It's not the watch I really liked. And I think today the market is too much driven by which one has the highest resale value. And that shouldn't be the case. Of course, we can't change it. It would only change if the reselling price drops below the retail price. Then I think we would see the real market reality as long as the reselling price is higher than uh, the, the retail price, there will always be a demand for it, which is not purely driven by, I love this piece, it's aesthetically nice, it's mechanically fantastic, it's really unique. I think we will always have people in the market who buy it purely for investment perspective. For me, the most horrible, I shouldn't say horrible, but hurtful thing is if, if I hear people who say, we buy a watch, and we put it into the safe because it's kind of an um, alternative investment. How sad. The watch doesn't belong into the safe. The, the watch belongs on the arm, on the wrist, and uh, you want to look at it and you want to enjoy it. So so um, we'll see how that continues. But yes, wish lists, we have wish lists. Uh, we carry people on wish lists, but we share with them the reality. We tell them, look, there is a really, really long list and... and uh, is there not any other model or is there not any other piece that you would like? If they insist they want to have only this piece, then it's their right, I think. It's everybody's right to have a wish on something and then we have to see if we can fulfill the wish or not. On this show, we concur with you 100%. Not only Rob, David and I, everybody in the Real Time Show Network, we always say don't treat them as an investment class. It's indeed art. That's the beauty of watchmaking. It's mechanical art and it's to celebrate life, to celebrate beauty, to celebrate engineering, etc. But there is a dark side. And the dark side, as you highlighted a bit, that the moment people start treating it as an asset class or just want it for the delta of potential profits, shady things happen. You hear stories in the industry of big retailers that carry the big names of bribes and linked 
purchases. So if you want to be eligible to get a wish list piece, you need to buy the same amount of jewelry or brands that are less popular, etc. How does buyer deal with, let me call it corporate governance? How do you protect your integrity as a company with these strong forces on the outside? I think that is has very much to do with the people who work within within the company and 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 certain rules that you put into place um so you limit for example how many watches um each um customer can buy per year um i think it's not normal if you buy 10 watches of one brand per year so so you try to to have a fair spread among um wide customer range that everybody has the chance to own uh, a beautiful piece. And I also think it's absolutely not right to to, to package things together. And I always think it's it's wrong if somebody buys a piece of jewelry only to get to get a nice watch because what does it say about my jewelry? I want that the people buy our jewelry because they like our jewelry, because they see the value in it, they see the art in it, they see the perfection in it, they see the story in it as well, because in jewelry, as much as in watches, there should be a good story. Um, a product without a story is just a product, and I think real luxury is when you have a story to it. So you you just need to put certain... Um, rules into place and also these rules you need to explain tra- transparent and open to your clients um, and most of the clients they um, understand it they may not like it they think um, they should get more watches but they understand again like in many other things i think that the key is transparency and if you are transparent and if you're open about things um, people like it, people don't like it, but people at least can say, I see the reason behind it. I see the logic behind it. I still would like to get the watch first, but um, um, people do um, kind of respect that. But people don't respect if if it's kind of, you don't really know what's happening in the back. You don't really know if you need to do a special, whatever kind of dance down the Bahnhofstrasse that you get a certain watch. It's not the case. I mean, it needs patience for these um, special watches. And and I say, there are many other watches around there as well, which in the meantime, people can also buy um, and, and focus not only on the one watch. Um, I think it's something that you need to communicate and be just very, very transparent about. On topic of transparency, a consumer that wants to buy a waitlist model from buyer, what's the procedure? How do you go about? Because... You, as a CEO and company buyer, are rather rare. Most Patek and Rolex dealers send you away. It's known that most of the dealers don't even reply to emails, WhatsApps, phone calls. And if you walk into a store, they literally laugh at your face when you ask for, uh, let's say, a Dayton or a Nautilus. So how do you deal with consumers that come in with such a request virtually or physically in the store? I think one of the things um, which is done across the world these days is that um, customers are encouraged in buying in their home country, where you have a relationship with the retailer, where you meet him on a regular basis, you meet him, you see him, you you, you build a relationship. So um, in general, um, for brands which have more demand than supply, we focus on on uh, local clients, so to speak. Uh, by local doesn't mean to be there are Swiss nationals, but they need to live in Switzerland because we want to build a relationship with the customer. We don't want just to have a one-shot deal. He comes in, he buys his watch, and then I never see that person again. Uh, we would like also uh, help them then to build their collection over years that they buy their first watch, their second watch, maybe some jewelry, maybe some other things. So it's it's a it's a relationship driven thing. Customers who come in and just say, "I'm from there and there, and I want to have this um, watch," which let's say is a very popular model, 
Um, we tell them that we are very happy to show them the piece. They can try it on on their wrist. They can see if it really fits them, if it really good, looks good on them. But um, we encourage them to contact their local retailer in their local city or in their country and, and to place the demand there. This makes most sense to buy there where you live, there where you have a relationship, there where you can drop by once in a while and where you know your, you know your retailer. And see, the thing is same thing. I think it's true when you buy jewelry, jewelry, diamonds, color gemstones is very much a question of trust. You need to trust your retailer. You need to trust your partner. It's, it's a relationship. It's not just a transactional thing. I have a product I sell to you. That's it. No, it's it's a relationship that you want to build. We want to know our clients. We we are interested in their background. We are interested in their life, and and that's why we we focus mainly on on local Swiss um, clients. So please give a tip to new collectors to the game of watch collecting, because they are often sent into a loop. In some countries, I'm not saying Bayer does that, but I know this from other retailers in other countries. You walk in, you show interest for a Patek. Could be even an, a model that's less wanted, and Calatrava white gold, for example. Now, they'll tell you, oh, are you a customer of ours? If you say no, they won't even continue the dialogue with you. Is that the same case for Bayer? Or will you, for a new time consumer, still add them to the wish list? Look, um, I think we are far from being perfect. And I think there is no perfect solution for this challenge. I think it's difficult. It's really difficult because every client think they would have the right to get that watch. But reality is um, we have a stronger demand than a supply. So as long as this exists, it's just really difficult to find a perfect solution. So we can just try to find kind of a maybe semi-perfect solution or as perfect and as transparent as possible. Uh, we basically try to take any wish into consideration and it gets on a wish list and we try to fulfill these wishes. We don't sell only to clients who are already five or 10 or 20 years customer with us. We have also some customer who buy their first um, Patek or Rolex with us. And actually, in the beginning, when I joined the company, I often had the question, so what do we need to do? Uh, do we need to be born as a buyer customer? Which obviously, you can't be born as a buyer customer like you cannot be born as any retailer's customer. And so we say, no, just you need to have patience. Put yourself on a list for a watch. Uh, but also open up your mind. Don't just get one model and this only one model because everybody says that's the best piece, that's the best investment piece. Be an open, be open-minded. Tell us also what other products would interest you from this brand or from from other brands. So so just show an open spirit. If 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 somebody insists only this and this and this, yes, eventually we hope we can make this watch available for him or her as well, but it's just difficult. Um, supply and demand. So so I I can't say um, how that problem can be solved. I don't think it can be solved. Um, I only think that um, we need to to find ways to talk open and honest about it because. See, many customers then try also to go to 10 different retailers and put that request down with 10 different retailers, which distorts also a little bit the reality of the situation because the demand is not 10 times this watch. It's one customer who wants to have this watch one time. So somehow we need to find a solution. I don't have the solution, the perfect solution. I think we can handle it in a respectful way um, towards our clients and as or we try at least to to handle it in a respectful way we are not perfect as i said and and we try also very much to work in the interest of the brands so that the right people get the right watch people who really appreciate the watch who wear the watch who enjoy the watch and yes when we when we allocate watches always a certain percentage goes to new clients because 
we need to grow our client base. I want to have more customers. I want to have new customers. So I don't want to, talk, to turn around always the same circle of customers. So that is always a chance. Sometimes, even after two years, maybe we cannot fulfill a wish. Then the customer has to tell us, does he want to continue to wait? Or does he say, no, I'm fed up waiting. I buy now something else. Did the Rolex certified pre-owned program relieve a bit of that pressure on waiting lists or wish lists, as you call them? And please also, when you tell us that story, flip it to how it helped you as a retailer as well. Are you happy with the program? And if so, why and how? We are very happy with the program because, um, I mean, it gives the client um, assurance that what he buys is an authentic piece. Um, I don't know if this is right, but I read in one of the Swiss uh, business papers that such a high percentage of Rolex watches are, are fake or some parts of it are not original parts anymore. Um, I don't know if this percentage, because they were talking really of a very high percentage, I don't know if this is true. So this, this certified pre-owned of Rolex definitely helps to give the clients assurance that they buy an authentic and original piece. And in our case, it definitely has increased the, um, the demand for pre-owned with this uh, certified pre-owned program of Rolex. And, and I think it's a, it's a good thing. It's also a good thing that Rolex says we do that only together with actual retail partners and not just simply with everybody. Uh, and it adds um, a certain um, peace of mind to, to the people's mind when, when they do that. Um, but I can't say that we have doubled the business because of that. With, with, at the, because at the end of the day, it's still you have to buy the watch somewhere. And um, we don't want to pay fantasy prices, uh, which are driven by the highest market price. We, we want to pay a, a realistic price. And what we do in our case, we only sell watches which are not part of the current collection anymore. Because I think it makes no sense that I sell a new watch, let's say at retail 15,000, and I sell exactly the same watch, which is pre-owned at 30,000. I mean, how can I explain that to my client that um, on the pre-owned, so not new anymore, I sell at double the price, then I sell exactly the same watch, new one. So we don't do any watches that are still part of the current collection because I don't know how I could explain that and how I could justify that towards the client. So our philosophy, other, other retailers do it in a different way. But that's maybe one of the things which um, I, I would like to add about Bayer. Um, Bayer has always tried to do things differently and René Bayer very much has done so. René always said, I don't want to look like everybody else. I don't want to be like everybody else. I don't want the corporate luxury. I want to have an accessible luxury. I want that people come in in our boutique and feel comfortable and you don't have red carpet that you need to, um, that you actually even get allowed to go inside. So so when in everything we do, and that's very much driven by the spirit of René and also by his father is really, in whatever we do, we try to do it different than anybody else around us. Um, and that is what I think can help to create also a unique experience, an experience that is authentic buyer and not some copy-paste out of any kind of management or retail book. So I think it's very, very important. Uh, and that's why also with this certified pre-owned or with this vintage, we don't do current collections because every many other people do current collections as well, but we tried, we decided to do that differently. Thank you so much. And what you also do differently is you actually share the passion for watchmaking by offering watchmakers courses. You can find them on Bayer's website under the menu tab, watches. And when I click on it, I see you're already almost fully booked for 2024. So for you that want to do it, there are still availabilities on the 20th of November, 2024. Hans-Peter, I have a zillion more questions for you. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. I hope you will come back 
on the show again. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for giving me this opportunity to share. It's an exciting industry with exciting people and exciting brands. So it's great to be in that industry. For our dear listeners, as you can hear, Hanspet is lovely, friendly, and truly open and transparent. If you want to interact with him, join the TRTS network because he is a member of our network and you can actually correspond with him in our community. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. You can find all our previous episodes on our official website, www.therealtime.show. You can find us on Instagram with the handle therealtime.show. If you want to support the show, please subscribe, like, rate, and share it with your friends. If you have any questions, feedback, and or criticism, please do send us a message. You can also DM us if you want to join the TRTS community and we'll send you an invitation link. You can reach David via Instagram on his handle D-A-V-A-U-C-H-E-R. You can email Rob on his address, rob at therealtime.show. You can find him on IG, R-O-B-N-U-D-D-S, and you can always message me by email, alone at therealtime.show. And you can find me on the gram on my handle, A-L-O-N-B-E-N. J-O-S-E-P-H. Stay sane and keep on ticking.